Welcome to the Roots of American Music Podcast. My name is Clint Holly, and I will be your host today. This is Season 3 of the Roots of American Music Podcast called the Akron Heritage Music Project, graciously funded by the Knight Foundation and the GAR Foundation and produced in conjunction with Roots of American Music. Episode 5 is called The Akron Sound, and we explore Akron music history after World War II, because in other episodes we've talked about the jazz scene prior to World War II. And so we're going to focus on the 70s, 80s, 90s, and beyond for Akron music, and we have a great interview lined up today. Our guest today is Calvin Reitbaum. He runs the Akron Sound Museum that's located inside the Bomb Shelter Vintage Store in Akron, Ohio. And it's a great little museum that has kind of a roadside attraction feel to it. Uh, Some great memorabilia and artifacts. And Calvin will tell you the story of how it got started and kind of what their ongoing mission is. Our musical guest today is Royd Rage, a self-described garage rock band that turned in a great performance on our live stream from Akron Recording Company. And as always, we encourage people to go to the Roots of America Music Facebook page and check out all of those live streams. The complete performances are all archived on the page, and you will hear uh, some samples of that show uh, in the podcast today. So let's jump into it and start talking to Calvin. He's got uh, a wealth of information and history about Akron and his great quote is that Akron somehow bats out of its league in terms of talent and exposure that the music from Akron has gotten over the years. So let's dive in and learn more about the Akron sound. My name is Calvin Reitbaum. I am a archivist by training. The Akron Sound Museum was planned by somebody else, a gentleman named Wayne Beck, who unfortunately passed away a couple years ago, who originally... I had written a book called Modern Akron for Arcadia uh, that dealt with Akron changing from the rubber capital of the world to more the technology-based town it is now with polymers. And I had covered a number of things that happened in the 60s, 70s, 80s to cause that change. And my publisher was like, you know what's selling the book is, is your chapter on music. Maybe you ought to delve into that a little bit more. And And I had found out that Wayne Beck, who was part of the scene at that time, but more somebody who excelled in having after-hours parties and actually being on stage. (laughs) Um, (laughs) There's a place for that in the world. (laughs) Yeah, there is, there is. Uh, He was already off and running with it. And uh, we got together, and and he was excited to have somebody that was actually a professional archivist to do all the kind of nuts and bolts and getting the collection together in a way he couldn't. And I got very involved with it. And I I really loved it because while I was far too young to get into the crypt, I did get into the bank a few times. I'm not saying it wasn't with an ID that perhaps wasn't mine. (laughs) Because the bouncer at the bank was liberal and that kind of thing. And then I was old enough to get in JB's, which was the third stop for the whole Akron Sound thing in Kent. Uh, so so I knew about it. I, I loved those bands. I had gone to see several of those bands. And uh, I, I just got involved with Wayne, along with a few other people. Uh, you know, Jill, who owns Jilly's, and, and, and a few other people, like through their Jim, Jimmy Image, who's been documenting Akron music since the 80s, got involved. And we put together the Akron Sound. And then when Wayne unfortunately passed away, uh, a year or two, a couple of years ago, I just, I just kept it going because 
Well, I, I like doing something for say, let's let's say I'm doing it for the city of Akron because you know what the Akron Sound Museum does do is it celebrates that Akron has an artistic side that recently I I, um, I spoke at um, one of the universities up north in Cleveland and the professor said something along the lines of like, yeah, Akron just like punches out of its class music wise. Right. So it's, it's celebrating that. And I'm, I'm, I'm doing that for the city. You know, it's a, it's a really cool thing. And we are, we are a nonprofit. So it's the Akron Sound Museum celebrates the fact that Akron kind of punches out of its class creativity wise. And we should be proud of that. Let's talk a little bit more about the museum. Tell us a little bit more about the space and how that came to be and what the kind of mission was when it got started. Well, at first, and we used to do pop-ups all around town, and we really wanted a just a permanent place because the collection was growing and right. growing and growing. You know, I, I recently acquired a uh, stage-worn Devo jumpsuit that Mark Mothersbaugh wore in concert. That oh. I've got to, you know, I need to get that up somewhere. Nice, you know? yeah. Um, so we just keep getting stuff, and all the time I get people calling me like, "I have this. Do you want this? Do you want this?" And you know, we wanted to show all this cool stuff we had and let Akron know how amazing its musical history was. Right. And while we're still focusing on that Akron sound music, we've also spread out because. You know, there was a you know an amazing R and B scene uh, that turned into a hip hop scene in Akron right. during the period. I mean, you know, you could probably you can make the argument the biggest guy that came out of Akron music in the seventies was James Ingram. You know, and that's not even counting like Howard Hewitt and Shalimar, and and then James's brother who had a Motown band with some hits, and you know, and then you got you know, but basically one of the largest gospel recording industries in the country, right down the road with uh, Cathedral Tomorrow going on at the same time. I mean, there there was so much going on in Akron, and then. So we've started kind of branching out somewhat. I mean, okay. it's still to deal with celebrating that period. But, you know, we also like to point out that, you know, Grandpa Jones got to start in Akron, the guy from Hee Haw. Oh, yeah. And, and all the, the acts that were the the jazz singer, um, the old Peter Gunn TV show that was is such a classic in, in theme and jazz, the the woman singer there uh, in the club was from Akron. And oh no way, me and my wife watch Peter Gunn almost every night because it's on streaming now. <laughs> right, the the blonde who's the singer in the club. Yeah, his girlfriend. Right, Akron native. Interesting. <laughs> okay, well, I'm gonna have yeah. to definitely dig into that. They always have great music in in the right, Peter right. Gunn too. You know, so so much music came out of Akron. In fact, I uh, I occasionally do a show on 91.3 with Brad Savage. Uh, and, and one of them we did was, you know, musical acts completely outside of the Akron sound. Um, you know, and there was no end of people. And the one thing that for the Akron sound, so many crazy breaks happened that made it possible. But unless there was not this really abnormal amount of kids with more talent than is usually found in in bars playing music, they couldn't walk through that door. Right. It's one thing to own have the door open for them. It's another thing to walk through it. You hear Calvin talk about the young people were the ones that kind of created this Akron sound. So when Roots of American Music planned this live stream from Akron Recording Company, we specifically wanted a younger band to represent this new generation of people in Akron making music. 
So we sat down for a few minutes with Jake from Roid Rage so he could tell us a little bit about their sound, who was in the band, how they formed, and we're going to listen to one of their songs called Vice Grips. Uh, my name's Jake. Um, I play guitar and I sing in Roid Rage. Um, also, there's Austin Kaufman. He plays drums. And then Zach Casey, he plays bass and does some vocals, too. If you had to describe the style of Roid Rage, what would you say that the style of music is? I would say... I think of it as more like garage rock. Okay. Um, but there's definitely some like punk influence, um, like older 80s, like Misfits, Dead Kennedys influence there. Um, I would say big influence of mine is like the OCs, Ty Seagal. And, um, so I would say like garage rock is kind of what we shoot for. some of the bands that, that turned you on to music in Akron? Hammer Damage, definitely. Um, Unit 5, uh, definitely Devo. Although I don't think I completely understood Devo at the time. <laughs> you know, I just got to a point in my life where I just started understanding Devo, actually. <laughs> well, you know, it, it's, it, it's, it's such kind of almost, I don't want to say happy-go-lucky music, but when they hit their peak, commercial wise they're on mtv and they're these goofy guys in the energy dome doing these fun songs and then you look back at their catalog and what mark and jerry and these guys have done and they were they were as punk rock as the pistols ever were if not more right i mean these were a group of pretty pissed off angry guys if you listen (laughs) to your music and that's right and the visuals mtv gave them didn't make that clear. And listening right. to the music now, that is hard. Devo's hardcore punk in attitude, no question. What do you think brought that punk mentality to uh, Akron, Ohio? 
Well, I, I think two things happened that were extremely unrelated. Well, a, a, a theme and something happened that were extremely unrelated. A couple of years ago, I think it was the Washington Post, while you know, looking for whatever angle to write about Kent State and May Day, did an article about how the Akron punk scene grew out of 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 Kent the Kent State shooting. And there are a lot of people, Chrissy Hine, Chris Butler, Devo, will agree with that from their perspective. But then there's a lot of guys, the the original lineup of Tin Huey, the Bizarros, that will say, or, or the Rubber City Rebels, will say, yeah, we didn't even talk about Kent State when we, we started doing our music. But Kent State does affect some of the musicians immensely. But the other thing that affects them, and and you know, Buzz Click of the, the Rubber City Rebels had a great line um, where he, he, just, he just said, like, you know, none of us wanted to follow our fathers and mothers into the rubber factories. And I think his line was something along the lines of, all the chairs at the table were uh, taken by company-approved pop rock, right? And then, the, right. then this, then this new wave uh, punk rock thing opened, and we all just kicked through the door. So I, I think it was both an anger among young people about what happened at Kent, and what's completely forgotten the uh, protests a couple of days after that at Akron because of what happened at Kent State. And then um, the fact that they didn't want to become rubber workers like, you know, people who grew up in Akron were expected to do for the previous 60 years. Right. They, they just didn't want that life. And, you know, Buzz will tell a story. Rod tells it, too, but he tells it a little differently. He's maybe a, a little nicer about the Johnny Thunders. But they got tickets to see the Johnny Thunders in, in uh, Cleveland. And at the time, the Rubber City Rebels were King Cobra which was uh, something that doesn't exist now. A cover band that was playing out six nights a week that had their own, you know, equipment and right. sound men and all kinds of stuff. And these guys, it was their only job. They right. made a living being a cover band that doesn't exist anymore. And and uh, they decided, uh, they got tickets and they, to the Johnny Thunders, which was, a you know, a, a prominent New York punk band at that time. And they went to see him, and and Rod, and Buzz, and uh, Dave Zager, Donnie Damage, had been maybe talking about doing something different, like trying to, you know, not just be a cover band. And they watched this punk band from New York, and they're like, "We can do this better than them." <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, that's right. the way Buzz tells it. Right. You know, uh, um, Rod, Rod Firestone will. You know, coded. Well, we didn't. We didn't think they were bad. We just, you know, he'll he'll be a little nicer about it. But Buzz <laughs> was like, "Oh yeah, we saw these guys. Like we can do this punk thing better than these guys." Right. <laughs> so, so then they went back home and wrote Child Eaters because they challenged themselves to write a song that only had two chords in it. Right. Uh, and <laughs> and and no, that's that's a true story. Right. That's why I, they wrote the song. I believe. And then it. they then they were off and running, and then like. This swarm of, of perfect storm things happened. King Cobra's sound man was a guy that lived in Rod's building that he met that said he was also into music, that they hired as a sound man, that being Mark Mothersbaugh. Wow, okay. Who, who, who they booked his band Devo uh, as an opening act, which, which is kind of hilarious to think in like 1976, King Cobra playing biker bars with Devo opening 
with their playpen on stage. And <laughs> right. Yeah. Might have been the wrong demographic. Right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. People. Yeah. It, it's one of those great things where these people hated Devo. <laughs> and now 40 years later, like, yeah, I saw Devo in a club in Barberton with only 10 people in it. You know, <laughs> and, I threw, and I threw beer bottles at them. <laughs> yeah. Well, the thing is, uh, I think it was Buzz loved to tell me a story about how uh, Devo had these big D-E-V-O letters in front of the band. Okay. And Buzz said, well, why do you, why do you do that? And he goes, oh, well, you know, it's just showmanship. And also, if the audience charges us, we have weapons to defend ourselves with. <laughs> <laughs> hey, well, it doesn't hurt to think ahead a little bit. <laughs> no, well, I, I think... I think in a large extent, Mark and Jerry really went out of their way to kind of infuriate. I mean, they, they were they were about challenging and pushing the audience right. in a way that the audience really didn't want to be pushed, maybe. And then the so so King Cobra is playing places around town and it's not a great summer because there's a big uh, rubber strike going on. OK. And there's a bar called The Crypt, which was across the street from, you know, Goodyear Plant. That was owned by a Goodyear worker. Okay. And during the day, it was clearly a worker's bar. Mm -hmm. You know, that's where they came in and had their retirement parties and, you know, had their beer on their lunch break. And and at night, the guy would like, you know, try to book bands and try to make money when, you know, the Goodyear workers usually weren't in there. Right. And as the story goes, he's not making money because none of the Goodyear people are coming in because they're all on strike. And his wife's giving him grief about, you know, like, you need to be home more. You're at the bar all the time. So there's this one band that actually draws pretty well and makes money. So he goes to this 23 and 25-year-old kid, Buzz and Rod, and said, hey, what if I just, like, turn the bar over to you? You pay me rent on it, and then you can keep all the extra money. Wow. And Because you guys are making money here. Right. So, Basically, the Rubber City Rebels in their early 20s were given a bar. (laughs) (laughs) So they call up their friends, you know, Mark, who's doing their sound anyway. Hey, let's get your band Devo on there. Mm -hmm. They call up, you know, another friend in New York who had recently moved to New York. So the Dead Boys come back and play this bar. Wow. Yeah, yeah. The the New Year's show, uh, the one year where it was, you know, Devo, the Rebels, and and the dead boys. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. And it's one of those things like the bar had held like 150 people and there's probably a thousand people claiming they were there now. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and as, as legendary as that, I hear the pair Ubu shows a few weeks before with, uh, with Devo were, were, you know, amazing as well. Wow. But yeah. So, so these guys in early twenties were given a bar and they could book all their friends with their, you know, crazy music right so then then you got nick nick nicholas coming along who him and his band his friends uh childhood friends had formed a band that oh you know you 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 take the velvet underground and filter it through punk and you have the bizarros and he forms a record label and he doesn't you know know how to form a record label but he did it right so he he wanders in and says like hey do you guys want to put out an album and the rebels are like, how much money? Like, oh no, you, you'll do one half, and my band will do the other, and you'll book my band here. And so all of a sudden, they had a, a label. And then you got like uh, Mark Price at Ten Huey, and then Rick Bailey both opening studios uh, in Akron. 
Okay. So you got you got these this bunch of people in their early twenties that have two recording studios, a record label, and their own bar. That's just a perfect storm. They're vertically integrated without even probably even realizing it. Yeah, they weren't. I mean, I, I'm not downplaying their intelligence in any way. Bunch of smart guys, but right. it's not like they sat down and had business meetings every week and put together this <laughs> right. network. It seems that there's still a pretty healthy DIY scene in the Akron area. Uh, Royd Rage plays traditional venues, but then Jake also tells me a little bit about uh, the other kind of non-traditional venues that they play. So let's talk to Jake for just a minute or two about that and then jump into another song by Royd Rage called Ed's Dead. <laughs> um, what were some of the venues that you guys played at? Um, you know, really, I think we, anything we could get, we, we did a lot of house venues. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, around Akron, there's like Cling Thing was probably one of our first house shows is Royd Rage. Um, and then uh, we would go out to Kent and do some house shows out there. Uh, that's always a good time. But then we played at venues um, as well. We did Musica a couple times. Okay. Um, trying to think of what else we did. Um, Is there a pretty good DIY scene uh, down here? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, it's been tough with COVID lately, but, right. you know, of course, prior to this, it's just a great group of guys that put on shows and right and are so willing to have bands even come from like out of state and play at their houses and you know the local bands kind of support uh, what's going on we bring the audience and, and um, yeah there's a really good yeah, way. so when somebody opens up their house to let you guys come in and play do they like cram you all down in the basement and you play down yeah, there pretty much <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah pretty much you know and usually the guy that's running the show um He'll try to get everybody downstairs. He's like, hey, the band's playing. Go downstairs. Right. Sometimes we'd be playing these basement shows or if it's in a living room, wherever wherever they have it set up. It's it's usually like a shoulder-to-shoulder crowd just right. watching the band. It's, well, it's, why, it's, another reason you said it's not so good for COVID, you know. Yeah, <laughs> of course. But for COVID, yeah. yeah. Well, nobody wants to have a bunch of people over to their house and everybody remember it being a bad time. Like So, you know, they have a vested interest in getting people to watch the bands and stuff like that. Yeah, you know? for so, sure. For sure. I think that's, that's pretty interesting. i 
original suite was a, a child star, basically, as a singer. Um, then put out four albums in the late 70s, early 80s. Had a big, a top 10 hit with uh, a guy named Rex Smith uh, at the time. And then, um, oh, what's his name? The guy that does Hairspray and... John Waters. Yeah, and then and then did a couple songs for some John Waters movies. Oh, okay. Then kind of got tired. It like went to college, got kind of tired of singing, hosted a show for MTV for a while in the 80s, and then got into producing and has, has been the showrunner for a couple shows. Uh, Hot in Cleveland was probably the last one that had a long run. And it has been, been a, a fabulously successful TV producer. But it, in her teens and 20s, she was a singer. So Stiff Records also signed her and then also did a couple Devo um, singles. So, and I always thought this was, you know, folklore until I looked it up and found it true. In London, in the late 70s, bars had Akron Nights. And, well, there seemed to be some truth to the story that Mark and Devo were over there on tour because their first stuff did fairly well in England. And somebody, some, you know, one of the music magazines asked him what Akron's like. And he's thinking like dirty, dungy, smelly. So he said, <laughs> oh, it's a lot like Liverpool. And supposedly, then this music magazine ran a story with the title of Akron is the new Liverpool. I also think there's a lot of truth in the fact that Stiff Records had three releases in this summer of Akron acts. So went to all the bars and said, you're having an Akron night and we will give you this money. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Cause I know how the industry works. Sure. And you know, right. of, of course, stiff records, if they've got, if they've got three releases from acts in a, a you know, a mid-sized town in Akron, they're going to do something to promote it sure. over in England. But you know, and, and that happened too. It was just a, just, amazing the number of perfect storm moments that happened people talk about the akron sound but there truly is no akron sound sure where all those grunge bands sound pretty similar you know devo doesn't sound anything like ken huey or ken right. huey sounds nothing like the bizarros and you know the bizarros sound nothing like the rubber city rebels it was a scene and a movement that was much more about attitude and where we were from, then there, there was no actual sound the way there was grunge or something or, or disco. Now, how does a band like uh, Chrissy Hind and the Pretenders you know, fit into this whole thing? Chrissy was uh, around in the early years. I mean, you know, she hung out with everybody because, you know, I don't know if you know this, but Terry, her brother, has been the sax player for the Numbers Band since like 1970. Okay, I didn't know it was that long. Oh, yeah, yeah. Him, Bob, and Jack are the core members from the very early 70s. But Chrissy knew everybody. Chrissy had a band with Mark Mothersbaugh uh, in like 73. And they played out once. Um, and and that's kind of, I don't know, the Akron Sound Holy Grail, if anybody actually has a soundboard of that night. But, you know, Chrissy was definitely part of the scene. Everybody knew her. You know, she told everybody she was going to be a star. But yeah, she wasn't playing out in the clubs with everybody else on a regular basis because she was back and forth to England. Okay. But she was definitely, definitely part of that scene. Now, then, uh, you know, the other person that always intrigues me, too, is uh, Ralph Carney because he's connected to Pat Carney from the Black Keys, correct? Right. Well, Ralph was in a band with the drummer from, uh, oddly enough, the drummer from Tri-Pig and, and Alan Myers, the drummer from uh, Evo. Uh, although the drummer from Tri Pig, Richard, also played trumpet. 
Right. So they were doing a jazz thing together at one point. And also, a lot of bands came out of music stores. Record Theater and Fairline and Disc Record at Summit Mall. Okay. A lot of them work there. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Lockie McIntosh, who was the horn guy for Tin Huey, decided to leave the band. Harvey Gold was working at Disc Records at the time. And Ralph Carney was a you know a 17-year-old kid working there. It's like, hey, we need a new sax player. Why don't you come along? Ralph said he was blown away by them the first time he heard them, but they were so loud. <laughs> <laughs> right. I, I have I have oral histories with so many of these people, and and Ralph's story about that time is is pretty amazing. He played with them a couple years, and then got the opportunity to go to uh, uh, basically a a place where a lot of jazz musicians were hanging out in New York and playing with each other. Because I think in some ways, in his heart, he was. A, he really was a jazz musician. So he, he headed up there, but, you know, then, then wound up with the B-52s and Tom Waits for 12, 13 years. Right. And, you know, I, I mean, he was, he was a top-tier studio guy. He put out a couple solo albums. Him and uh, Tom did some soundtracks. Him and uh, Pat did some soundtracks. And then, oddly enough, uh, most people don't realize this, but then Pat's bandmate, his it's like a he's like a distant cousin, but he's still a cousin, an Akron guy whose right. name is completely escaping me at this moment. Um, is the guy that did all the velvet underground bootlegs in the sixties and then played lead guitar on a couple of Lou Reed albums. Oh, Robert Quine. Yeah. Interesting. So both of the guys in the Black Keys have connections with people that were major movers for Akron music a couple decades before. So let's talk about the Black Keys a little bit. Um, we talked about kind of their connection. They have, you know, some family members that, that were in the music business and stuff like that. How, do, how does a band like that develop out of Akron? You know, I know they they started off kind of a, almost a straight up, you know, blues band to start with. Right. Um, so talk a little bit more about, uh, you know, how, how they came into being. Well, I, I mean, I, I think they both had a certain vision of the kind of music they would do. And yeah, I, I mean, it's, 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 I don't want to be one of those people to tell this story, but I was at, uh, you know, the Lime Spider when they're playing in front of 15 people very early on. Right. Uh, because really, because they were friends with friends of mine. Dan worked at uh, a record store with a, a very close friend of mine. So, you know, I was in the, some of the same circles, but. I think with them, and, and Pat has told me, it's like, yeah, you know, the fact that all these bands got signed to major labels who are friends of mine, because, you know, uh, you got his uh, uncle, uh, Ralph, and then his dad, James, who's also kind of was a writer for the Beacon Journal for years, Okay, uh, is uh, friends with, you know, all these musicians. Right. So, you know, Pat knew all these guys that have had success and gone on to do major label stuff and you know he knew it was possible and he he said that to me uh it was actually in an email he said it not in person that like right seeing seeing the fact that his uncle and all their friends had success out of akron made him know they could do it and they hit the right note at the right time mm -hmm. uh dan's in a an amazing creative force and I also think that sometimes people don't give Pat's early producing that, you know, they did in, in Pat's basement with that lo-fi sound he was shooting for. Right, right. Uh, credit either. 
because um, it's not, I don't know. I, I think some people kind of feel like he's along for the ride, which is complete and utter nonsense. They just, they just had a sound they were going for and they hit the right note. And I think what's their credit as a band though, is though they've continued to evolve. Mm-hmm. I mean, you listen to some bands and, you know, you go over six albums and, you know, the songs on these six albums during their peak are interchangeable. Yes, right. And the Black Keys have continued to evolve as a creative duo. Right. And I think that's very much to their credit because a lot of musicians are like, well, you know, we've got a sound and it's getting us top 40 hits. So we're not changing this one iota. <laughs> Well, and obviously the Black Keys also tip their hat to history a little bit. I mean, calling one of your first albums Rubber Factory is uh, obviously kind of a tip to the hometown uh, also. Well, they, they, they recorded the one album inside the abandoned General Tire plant, you know, and and oh, yeah, they're, I mean, they, there's an EP out there with a junior. It's just them doing like junior Kimbrough songs. And yeah, they, they definitely look back and look forward in the same way. Right. Which again is what makes them successful is they both look back and look forward. They're they're they have done, you know, some blues covers in a way, but they're never gonna be an homage band ever. But they do they they do know where music came from. They're students of music as well as creators. As we start to kind of wind down this episode about Akron music in the seventies, eighties and beyond. Let's talk to Jake from Roid Rage one last time about the live stream experience and how long a punk band actually plays. And we're going to listen to one more song from Roid Rage because these punk band songs are so darn short. We're going to squeeze a third one in here for your enjoyment. And the last song we're going to listen to uh, today is called uh, Steak Sauce. Now, uh, I know uh, the live stream tonight is supposed to be an hour long. Do you guys usually play hour long sets? No. We were stressing out about it. We were practicing last night, and like we got through half, a little more than half a set. We were like, oh no, this it's only been a half hour. <laughs>
Now, with the museum, do you want to expand it at all? Are you happy where it's at? Uh, what's kind of the future plans for that? I think we're, we're, we're more, I mean, would we like another 100 square foot to get stuff up? Yeah, but we're getting more traffic there simply because of bomb shelter traffic. And, you know, we are a nonprofit, so there's a matter of cost. So we can move somewhere downtown and pay like, you know, 20 times the rent and um, have more space. But we'd probably get a fifth of the people walking in there because of all the people just wandering there from shopping at the bomb shelter. Now, do you uh, do you guys do any programming? Do you do any historical talks? Do you have shows at all? Are there any any kind of live events that the Akron Sound Museum does? No, not. I mean, you know. Once in a while, Jill at Jilly's will, I mean, obviously she hasn't had live music there for a year, right? except for her streaming, which, you know, you should check that out. But she would do like an Akron Sound um, fundraiser. Um, And so many of the Akron Sound bands still play at Jilly's and, you know, they'll promote us here and there. But um, I don't know. We talked about it, about trying to do some live shows, but... Mm, it it seemed a little pointless because we don't really have the facility to do it. You know, Jilly is putting these guys on stage all the time anyway, you know, pre-pandemic. When I started rolling with this, you know, I reached out to a couple of facilities around the country. You know, in the, the DC Punk uh, archives, which is actually in their library system, you know, her, her person was pushing hard to, uh, oh, you got to do live shows, you got to do live shows, you got to do live shows. Um, but it just didn't really work for us. But and it, and it's in a, in a weird amount of also synchronicity for helping us out. The archivist of the um, DC Sound Collection uh, graduated from Revere High School and Akron U, and is an Akron native. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, so we got that connection with some of the right, big, yeah. bigger institutions to help us out. It just keeps circling back around, always, <laughs> yeah. always back around to Akron, which is yeah. very, very interesting. Yeah, Akron, Akron just had more talent than, and always has had more talent. I mean, in, in, in like I said, in R and B and everything, and some weird opportunities happened. You know, the the sky just parted, and and people met each other that maybe wouldn't have known each other otherwise. And right. Bar owner said, Hey, do you want that? Do you want to run my bar? And book your friends? <laughs> yeah. How many you times know? does that happen? <laughs> never. That never happens. <laughs> right. Here, here's the keys. Here's, here's the keys. Just take my bar, please. Right. Right. That never happens. Well, there you have it. Another episode of the Akron heritage music project brought to you by roots of American music, the GAR foundation and the Knight foundation want to thank Calvin Reibaum for sitting down and talking to us about the Akron Sound, the Akron Sound Museum, and all of those crazy characters that made up that Akron Sound. I'd like to thank Jake and Roid Rage for playing our live stream. And once again, I would like to encourage everybody to go to the Roots of American Music Facebook page and check out all of our live streams that are archived there. I'd like to thank Mike Fanos for editing work. I'd like to thank Dave Polster for technical and mastering work. I'd like to thank Kevin Richards, the Artistic Director of Roots of American Music. Jason Myers, Executive Director of Roots of American Music. If you enjoy these podcasts and think Roots of American Music is an organization you would like to support, please go to our website, www.rootsofamericanmusic.org, and find the donation button and uh, 
We'll take anything. or $1,000. It's your support helps make our mission possible. I am Clint Holly. I've been your host for this episode of the Akron Heritage Music Project called the Akron Sound. And until next time, have a great day. I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. All right, you think that was good enough? I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? Right. I've never done it. (laughs) I know, right?